that is a reflection of his own character and who he is. And so he tells us what is right and wrong according to his own nature. But more and more it seems that the church is taking its cues from the world, particularly in young people as they... We see that, that young people tend to look at their friends they, and look at the culture around them, look at what's popular, and we know that that's the, hard, the younger you are, the harder that is. Peer pressure is, is more often a talk given to youth than it's given to you know, larger. Not that we don't deal with peer pressure, but we do know that in those formative years, the peer pressure and the, and the things around us often help to define what we think about ourselves and how we believe. And more and more, we seem to be unclear about what the Bible says and more and more coming under the pressure of the cues of the culture around us. But if we were clear about what the Bible says, there would be no discussion. There would only be submission. There would only be obedience. Because the Bible is clear on this issue. The Bible is very clear. The fundamental question then is, what is your view of the Bible? Because when that is decided... The issue is decided. I was, went to school, I did my seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia, and while I was there, I went to a public debate between uh, the, the Episcopal Bishop of John Shelby Spong, the Bishop of New Jersey. Uh, I went to a, a debate between Bishop Spong and John Stott, who is an Anglican pastor from England, a conservative evangelical pastor, to debate this very issue. And it was interesting in the course of it where Stott came out and he read several scriptures, a couple of which I'm going to read here in a minute, and he read the scriptures to Spong and he said, trying to make the statement of what the Bible consistently teaches, Spong's answer was, Paul was wrong. Bible is wrong. In other words, it's not God's word. It errs. There are mistakes in it. Paul was wrong. The writers were men. It's wrong. And that's the thing. What I respected about him, though, what I respected about Spong was that he did not argue that the, that the Bible didn't say that. What I respected about him, what he said, yes, the Bible says that, but I think it's wrong. Right? And so the decision about what we think of the Scripture really is going to define it because you can't really argue with what it says on the topic. You just have to decide whether you're going to submit to it and obey it or whether you're going to reject the Scripture at large. Truly, it's a conflict of worldviews. A worldview that embraces the Bible as God's Word and says, we're going to live this. You know, we're going to bow the knee before the God who made us and the design that He has made and proclaimed to us. Or, or we are going to define these things for ourselves. We will look at the popular culture or we will look into ourselves or we will look at anecdotal stories or we will look somewhere and we will make our decisions in that way. But for biblical Christians who embrace the Scriptures as God's Word, the only question is, what does God say about marriage? And our job then is to get in sync with the Creator, to get in sync with God's Word, to bow the knee, to follow Him, to serve Him, to honor Him, However unpopular it is, whatever names they may bring, whatever hate speech they may pour upon us. And God says several things. I want to turn then to the passage this morning because He says several things here in verse 4 about marriage that are crucial for us to understand. And in verse 4 He says, let marriage be held in high honor among all. 
Right? And the very first thing that he says about it is marriage is to be honored. It's to be held in high honor. It's to be esteemed. It's to be treasured. It's to be, it's to be held on to as something precious to us. And this is important because we also live in a culture where the same often in, in the younger crowd, the popularity and the commitment to marriage is in decline. Marriage is on the outs for a lot of folks. Young people more than ever are skeptical and cynical about marriage and about the possibility of succeeding in marriage, of finding true happiness in marriage, about what it means. There's a massive boom in living together before we're married. They say more than half of young people will live together before they get married or as an alternative to marriage. But God says marriage is to be held in high honor by all, which begs two questions for me. If it should be held in high honor by all, two questions, why and how? Why should we and how should we? So first, let me address the why. It should be held in high honor. Let me give you three reasons. First, because marriage is God's idea. Right? It's not our idea. We, We didn't invent it. It's not something that we came up with. Marriage is something that God instituted at the very creation of the world. And even as I say in every wedding that I do, it was instituted by God at the creation of the world for the welfare and the happiness of mankind. God designed it into the very creation. See, if marriage was simply a human institution and and the only considerations were practical, you know, then we could take it or leave it according to whatever practical needs are driving the moment. But if marriage is instituted by God, and it has moral implications, then there really is something that is at stake. There's something at stake in the whole question. And the interesting thing is we find marriage on page 2 of the Bible. You open, at least on mine, you know how the pages lay out. You open your Bible on page 2, we're introduced to marriage, and it runs right through right through the Scripture to the very end, even in defining and describing and picturing the nature of the new covenant itself, marriage is central. Genesis 2.24 is there under the second point in your bulletin. God says in 2.24, Therefore a man will leave his father and his mother. A man is going to leave his father and his mother and he's going to hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. A man will leave and to a woman he will cleave. And this is the picture that has been given and runs consistently through the Scripture. Secondly, marriage is a covenant. It's not only God's idea, it's a covenant that when we are faithful to it, it lays a solid foundation for a family. Right? When we are faithful to the covenant that we make in marriage, it's a solid foundation for, for the family, for our children that they desperately need. And, and as a foundation for our families, it becomes a foundation, a solid foundation for the church. When it's built on, on, on healthy families, it becomes a solid foundation for our whole culture and our world. As God designed it, as a building block for the relational construct of the world. In Malachi chapter 2, there in your bulletin, the next point, he says, the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Right? The Lord says, the Lord says it's a covenant, and I stand as witness to it, over it. 
we make those vows before God. I open every wedding with friends and family. We're gathered here in the presence of God and of all these witnesses to make a covenant. And God says, I am a witness between you and your wife about what goes on in your marriage. Covenant goes beyond getting our needs met. And a lot of people think of marriage very selfishly and it's all about getting my needs met in marriage and what my spouse has done for me lately when for God, this marriage covenant is a faithful partnership before God. And it's not only something that's God's idea and, and a covenant before God, but the last thing I would say this morning, there's many more things, but the last thing I would say this morning is it's a picture. Right? The Bible tells us that marriage is a picture that God wove into the very fabric of human relationships when he created the world, and when he created human relationships, and he institutes it at the very beginning, a husband and wife in marriage, he built into it, this is a picture, he says, of his own faithfulness. It's a picture of his own love. It's a picture of his own covenanting. Right? Ephesians 5, there in your bulletin, the next scripture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for He lays them side by side. Husband, love your wives as Christ loves his church. You see, the one is parallel to the other. The one is a picture of the other. And as Paul finishes the section, he goes on to say, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. In our covenant, marriages is intended to be a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the blood-bought church his people and as Christ loves his bride we're to love our brides and our spouses and the implications of this I mean just think about the applications there's a sermon right there I could just go off on that whole thing what are the the profound applications of the idea that our marriages picture God's relationship to us as his church and how he loves us and sacrifices for us and what He desires for us and how He works for us. How we respond to Him. And what that relationship, what would the atmosphere of a marriage be if it reflected this relationship of the love, the everlasting love of God for His people. Our covenant marriages are intended to be a picture of the new covenant. A living picture of how Christ loves and treats us. <laughs> marriage is to be held in high honor by all because it's God's idea and because, and because it's a covenant before Him and because it's a picture of His very own covenant love for His people. It should be honored. Well, that's why it should be honored, in brief anyway. How should it be honored? Well, first of all, and most obvious of all, is to have a high biblical view of marriage like I just described. Right, the first way that we honor marriage is to have this biblical high view of what's going on. Why we should do it. But secondly, the author doesn't leave us guessing. The text tells us. Right, in verse 4, let marriage be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Because God is going to judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. The text doesn't leave us guessing how all of us should honor marriage. And it's interesting when he starts out just in that first sentence, let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, we honor marriage. The issue of honoring our marriages is, is, has a great deal to do with sexual purity. Right? Honoring the marriage bed is at the center of honoring marriage. 
And he says specifically that we do it by avoiding two things. The two things that that God will judge. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled because God's going to judge some stuff. There's some stuff that is contrary to his will, contrary to his nature, contrary to his purposes, contrary to the honoring of marriage and the sanctifying of the marriage bed. And those couple of things he gives to us and he says, God is going to judge sexual immorality and adultery. Two words that I believe cover pretty much every possible sexual relationship that is outside the bonds of a loving marriage. Those two words capture all of them. And say these are two these two areas are things that God is going to come against. See, if we're married and we're engaged in a physical relationship outside of the marriage, we call that adultery. That's that second word. So if we're married and we're engaged in a relationship, it's called adultery. If we're not married and we're engaged in any form of sexual relationship, it's called the second one, sexual immorality. Or as the old King James, I think, and as the old times, we used to translate this word, uh, fornication. The word here in the Greek is the word pornus. It's related to the Greek word porneia. It's the word that most of us would be familiar with. It's a word from which we get pornography. And it's a word that captures sexual immorality in all of its form, any and all kinds of sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. In the list of things that would be covered in that, and I'll make a brief list here in a second, an inappropriate relationship that's included in that list is homosexuality. It's one of those things that he says that, that is to be keep, in keeping the marriage bed undefiled. Because God is going to judge sexual immorality. Homosexuality is included in this. The reason that biblical Christians reject the notion of redefining marriage to include the homosexual relationship is the simple fact that the Bible clearly says it's in the list of those things that is out of bounds. It's in the list of those things that are not part of God's design. They're a list of those things that then the Bible calls under that long-term sin. Because it's contrary. Leviticus, two verses in your text then there under the third point. Leviticus 10.13. This is where it gets dangerous. It gets dangerous for me. I'm writing this sermon. I'm writing this stuff down. I'm like, do you even read a text like this? Can I say this out loud? I'll never run for public office because I'm going to read this text. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Why would anybody say such a thing? And I can guarantee you I would never say it if it were just my idea. Unless I were trying to be faithful to what God says. Now some would read this and say, well that's the Old Testament. And we know that lots of stuff in the Old Testament, you know, we could just disregard a lot of that stuff. It gets really fuzzy and, you know. So they would try to turn it aside, which is it's also the New Testament is very consistent and very strong. Very strong. As you read Romans 1 which speaks about the wrath of God being revealed against mankind, against all kinds of ungodliness and wickedness. And then he gets into describing this whole understanding of Romans 1 to 3 of why, right and consistent with Hebrews 13, verse 4, God will judge these things. He says this in Romans 1, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And men likewise gave up natural relations with women. They were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God's design, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And not only do they do these things, but they give approval to those who practice them. And we live in a culture that, that not only those who do those things must give approval to those who practice them, everybody is being called to give approval to those who practice them. You are not allowed to hold a conviction contrary, a biblical, moral conviction contrary to the popular opinion. So I'm going to let Piper say, I'm going to quote somebody else and let him say it. And then I'm going to come, come out of this and we're going to dig back out of this real quickly. Um, Piper said in a sermon many years ago, to call homosexual or lesbian relationships marriage or to treat them as marriage is to treat an abomination as marriage. And that is the exact opposite of holding marriage in honor and keeping the marriage bed undefiled. In other words, Piper is simply quoting Leviticus. We just read a moment ago. He's simply, the language is hard and I know that. And I'm going to step back and, and we're going to take a look at that for a minute. And I think it'll be, it's helpful for us. The language is hard, but the language is true. And Piper taking it on his lips, to take it on our own lips and to say such a thing is, is hard, and I know that it is. It uses strong language. But let me just back out and just say, now it's not the only thing the Bible calls an abomination. In, in Ezekiel 22.11, which didn't make your bulletin, Ezekiel 22.11, the Bible calls, God calls adultery abom an abomination. In many places in the Scripture, the Bible calls idolatry an abomination. How many of you struggle with idolatry? You ever idolize a relationship? You idolize your children? You ever, you ever take as an idol money, sex, or power? You know, of, of being liked or being all the different things that tend to rise up and we need a whole sermon on idolatry because as soon as you do that, all of us commit sin that is an abomination. In other words, all, I would say all sin is an abomination before a holy God. And here it's singled out and it's named, but all sin is. Anything that goes against or twists God's design and God's purpose that is not the way that it's supposed to be. But when many Christians speak against homosexuality, it is not hate. And if it is, we need to deeply, deeply repent. It is not hate and it is not fear. It is not homophobia. It is a consistent, clear, biblical conviction that we are not free to define our own morality. The Bible consistently stands against all forms of sexual behavior that are outside of God's design. And when we use this one word, we want to put it in a list. The biblical sexual purity excludes premarital relationships, adultery, prostitution, polygamy, pornography, and the list goes on. I mean, it's consistent. We're not picking on some group. The Bible and God, and when we articulate it, is to say sexual purity is important to God and to honoring marriage the way He designed it. God's commands govern God's design for sexuality, for our good. If you notice, this is even a passage. It's interesting. It's a passage about love, right? He says, let brotherly love continue and don't neglect to show hospitality and make sure you visit prisoners and take care of those who are mistreated just as if you were mistreated. And, and then he says, and to make sure you keep your life free from the love of money, which would be idolatry, which is an abomination. And to keep your life free from... Uh, 
covetousness. Be content with what you have. I will not leave you or forsake you. I will care for you. In the context of this passage of, of God's design and His in loving relationships, He says, honor marriage and keep it sexually pure. Forsaking all others for just this one. We don't speak in fear. And if we speak these things with hate and self-righteousness, that is an abomination. Because sin is an abomination to God. We're called to speak humbly. We're called to speak lovingly. But we're called to speak. We must speak from a genuine sense of our own brokenness. But we must call wrong things wrong. It is never loving to affirm and to condone what God Himself condemns. Love speaks the truth even when it's painful. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds when someone will speak the truth into our lives, even when it's hard to hear, even when we don't know what to do with it. But hear this, it is self-righteous of us to condemn sin out there and fail to condemn sin in here. You know, we're an equal opportunity kind of a, a speaking against sin. You know, we do speak to this issue because it's a hot cultural issue of the moment. But my friends, as we speak to sin out there, we must speak to sin in here. Right? And we must take the log out of our own eye, even as we go after that splinter in the, in the eye of the culture. In other words, our own sin must loom large. We must come to a place of our own genuine brokenness and humbleness before God and to understand that I live every day only by His mercy and His grace. And that is we, whether we speak it into the culture or we speak the truth to each other in love, we speak the truth. Luther began the Reformation with a call. His first theses nailed to the Wittenberg door. He began the Reformation with a call for Christians to live in a posture of humble obedience. The whole life of a Christian is to be one of repentance and therefore humility. And therefore on your knees as beggars to God's grace. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who would call evil good. Stay in your bulletin under the last point. Woe to those who would call evil good and good evil. Who would put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who would put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. In other words, woe to those who would call good something that God has called evil. Woe to the church if it calls something good that out of fear that God has so clearly spoken about. Woe to the church if it has called something darkness. That God has called light or called something light. That God has called darkness. Let marriage be held in high honor by all. Do this by being faithful to God's word and God's design. And let us do it by pursuing sexual purity in heart, in mind, in marriage in the church, and outside of the church. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do come to you this morning as those who humbly sit at your feet to hear hard things. I pray you would also speak them into our own lives, that you would help us to see the log in our own eye, even as we want to speak to the culture and to stand for your truth. Father, let us stand for your own truth in our own hearts. Let us speak with humility. But let us speak in love. Father, would you fill us with your spirit?
Open our eyes and give us courage. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing and conclude and respond to all of this, remembering and praying that it is only by His mercy that any of us stand.